The Legendarium Podcast is brought to you by, by you. So please visit patreon.com slash legendarium to support, support the show. But for now, welcome to, to the Legendarium. But you know what? If I had been kidnapped by orcs, I have no doubt that you would all run 45 miles a day to get me back. If that was the only way to get you back, we would miss you. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome, everybody, to The Lord of the Rings, book three. This is the Legendarium Podcast. I am Craig Hanks, your host. And over there, well, what do you get when you crossbreed men and orcs? You get whatever he left in my toilet when we were 16 and he clogged it for three days. It's Ryan Bruckman. That is a true story. And it is the closest to Saruman I will ever be. <laughs> and, she, <laughs> and she's lovelier than the glittering caves and danker than Fangorn Forest. It's Megan Smythe. Aw, I feel seen. Thanks, <laughs> man. Megan the dank. I don't know that that's what you want to run with. But. The dank one. Eh. We spend too much time together. So as I said, Lord of the Rings, book three. So for those of you who are, uh, you know, not quite keeping up with us, if you're you're jumping in in the middle here, I put out my feelers on Discord and on Reddit, and I said, if you have any questions or comments, let us know. And so many people popped in with stuff for The Return of the King. And of course, you have to be the dick who... Kind of corrects somebody and says, well, actually, push your glasses up and uh-huh. say, oh, book three is actually the beginning of the two towers. So, sorry about that for if anybody. If you've been paying attention at all to what we were doing, you'd know this by now. How dare you all. Did you save any of those comments or are they going to have to comment them again when we get to Return of the King? Um, I'll try to save them. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we'll be all right. Uh, anyway, so yeah, that's what we're doing is the first half of the two towers. Now, if you appreciate what we do on the podcast, make sure you go to patreon.com slash legendarium to support the show. Not only are you supporting the show and getting the warm feelings in your heart whenever you listen, but also we are doing some live streams on Patreon now. I guess technically they're on YouTube, but you can only get there through Patreon unless I'm an idiot and share the link publicly on Twitter. In which case, anyone can join. That's when you did, Ryan did a live stream a little while ago, and I accidentally shared the link publicly. So anyway, uh, yeah. it was high quality material. <laughs> it, it deserved a home on Twitter. People seem to really like it. They they really enjoyed it. When I'm done with the surgery that I'm having later this week, uh, and I'm back up and running, I will do some Professor Craig stuff. Uh, stuff that you know we may not have a chance to get to on these podcasts. So if you look if you look forward to the Professor Craig stuff, you if you enjoy that then consider joining Patreon just for those live streams. I will have a little bit. Just a, I, I will have some Professor Craig stuff for today. All right. So anyway, uh, let's see. What else do we want to get to? Join the conversation on Discord, Reddit, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of that. We'd love to see you there. You guys have anything else before we dive in? No, forward to Fangorn and save the hobbits. (laughs) All right. As per usual with these episodes, I have a bit of poetry for you. I hope you're looking forward to it. Here we go. (sighs) All right, Lord of the Rings, book three. Disaster for Boromir from Uruks, half orcs. Now Aragorn's choices resemble tough forks. Yes, things for the king sure are hard because they're taking the hobbits to Isengard. Well done, sir. Thank you. Well done. <laughs> the trio give chase, man, dwarf, and elf, and run quite a race, one I'd never do myself. They leave Frodo and Sam to their own date with fate and fly toward the orcs in their mad, reckless hate. Merry and Pippin, meanwhile, escape from their foes and come across Fangorn, the tree with seven toes. They incite a slow riot and rouse trees to power, and the whole forest falls on Saruman's tower. And good thing they did, because he's been busy. He and the Oryx have got all Rohan in a tizzy. They burn, rape, and pillage all the way to Helm's Deep, where the company of Aragorn is holed up in the keep. Thence commences a battle like nothing we've seen. It's violent, it's hopeless, it's a pitiful scene. But then, out of nowhere, hope has arrived in the form of wizards and Ents, as Providence contrived. They win the day and go back to Orthanc and take Saruman's power, Isengard's wiped blank. But Pippin is naughty and looks in a seeing stone, so he and Gandalf must rush to Gondor alone. There you go. What are you looking up, Ryan? You look like you're about to fact check my poem. No, I'm not fact checking your poem. I'm like, did I not read far enough? Wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) 
you didn't read far enough. You ran out of time. Uh, that, That's fine. We're fine. That was like the last page, right? The uh, I think the last chapter in book three is called the Palantir. Okay. And so that's when Pippin looks in the stone and then Gandalf yells at him, throws him on Shadowfax and they are running yeah, like it's, crazy. It's sounding like they're going back to to Rohan, but instead on the very last page he says, no, no, I'm taking you to Minas Tirith. We can't go back to Rosen. R- Rosenhan? Rosenhan. That's Rosencrantz. A, right. Rosenhan is where <laughs> um, the Jewish horse lords were all sent. Oh. Let's move on from that. So, before we get to any of the Discord and Reddit stuff, I'll, I'll kick it to you guys as usual and ask if there's anything from these from this section that you want to talk about. Maybe starting toward the beginning with the departure of Boromir, which is, as far as I can tell, the shortest chapter in all of the Lord of the Rings. It's really quite quick uh, before we head off on our merry little chase. So, yeah, anything you guys want to talk about around the beginning of, of Book 3? I know it's a different... It's a different time, a different era, uh, but getting to Boromir's death and uh, watching Aragorn's response to it uh, with brotherly love and kind of like it, to me, I think that is a lost art to care for someone else that way. Um, and I just, it, it was a lot more touching this time around for me to read through that sequence um, and his Aragorn's words of comfort to him. Um, I wish wish I had it pulled up here uh, but his final words before uh, actually uh, Boromir smiled is one oh of my yeah f- I wrote that down too it's a great moment yeah uh, you have conquered few have gained such a victory be at peace Minas Tirith shall not fall Boromir smiled I I absolutely adored this moment um, and I, I marked the Boromir smiled part because I think it is so clean it is so to the point and it just an emotional connection there of showcasing what Boromir what that means to Boromir to have the 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 king basically you know the king of Minas Tirith promising to protect it and that his his role was fulfilled right after having tried to take the ring from Frodo right yeah it's we've all made stupid decisions I mean maybe maybe not Megan no I have she's on the podcast oh that's true (laughs) yeah it's a good point uh we've all made stupid decisions and we've all felt that weight you know that you get that feeling in your gut like you know you did something wrong um you know whether or not there were mitigating circumstances or uh whether it was in the service of something else or whatever we've all had that feeling and boromir has obviously done something wrong and to have that um that kind of absolution from someone you admire right before you die yeah it's it is a powerful moment i like that quite a bit mm-hmm. yeah okay. well and it's it's beautiful the way that chapter is written where you don't actually see boromir in that battle you just see the end of it you see aragorn he runs in and he sees boromir and he's on his knees and he's been shot with a ton of arrows and boromir's just like i i i tried to save the hobbits but they took them and he just feels like he's just done everything wrong. And here you have Aragorn, who also feels like he's just doing absolutely everything wrong. Oh, man. Um, That's a little bit heartbreaking, isn't it? It's really heartbreaking. And so to have that moment where Aragorn says, no, you you did everything that you could. And, you know, good on you. And I will I will take it from here. You can rest. Um, Yeah, it's, it's just a really nice moment. I think now, it also connects, because it's slightly further on in the story, when Aragorn's having to make a decision about where, where they need to go and what they need mm-hmm. to do, he actually factors in the promise he makes to Boromir mm-hmm. in this moment. If yeah. I follow Frodo and Sam, I'm essentially abandoning that promise. Yeah, so he has to choose between the, the fellowship promise that he made when he promised to Frodo back in the Council of Elrond and the one he just made to Boromir. And I can understand someone with the character of Aragorn why all of a sudden that it adds a whole lot of weight to that moment, moment of decision, uh, which could easily be I think passed over and ignored like he's got to make a decision either ways both good and bad whatever but no he's he's got to basically break an oath and And it's nice that uh, later on in the story Aragorn gets kind of that same I don't want to say absolution but he gets a little bit of a validation from Gandalf or Gandalf says if you had not run after Merry and Pippin if you had not made that choice I might not have found you all when I did and that needed to happen so I'm 
I'm glad that you made that choice. That was the right choice. And Aragorn could just take a deep breath. Okay, we're going to be all right. I did the right thing. So Aragorn's history is something that I, that I think would be good to keep in mind here. And that when Ryan is talking about two oaths, Aragorn is, he did not spring into being with the beginning of the story of the Lord of the Rings, right? He's mm-hmm. dude's 87 years old. He's been around a long time. Uh, he's fought in wars for you know under different armies and all this stuff and been a ranger etc and he has been essentially training for the kingship his whole life he knows he is going to uh, reclaim the throne of gondor at some point mm-hmm. and so when it comes time to take or to choose which oath to keep there is an older and deeper oath than the one even that he made to frodo and the fellowship um, to get the ring there mm-hmm. and you know and to a certain extent he has he hasn't fulfilled it but he has certainly sped Frodo on his way they got him halfway to Mordor at least I, I'd have to look at the map again but got him halfway to Mordor and uh, you know that's that's uh, not nothing as far as that oath is concerned anyway but now he's got to take up the other one and actually go he he might have thought originally when he joined the fellowship, he might have thought, I can accomplish this, defeat Sauron, and then go take the throne. Mm-hmm. And then as their journey continues and more facts come to light, and maybe it becomes more apparent to him that, no, these things are, things are happening too quickly. I don't have time to fulfill both oaths. So got to choose the older one. It, it puts a lot of trust on Frodo as well, where he says, okay, I'm, I'm not going to fulfill that oath. I'm going to go and, and take care of the others and move towards Minas Tirith. But then he really is just leaving Frodo on his own. Yeah. With Sam. What something, you something that you said kind of sparked a thought of me that, that I've actually appreciated on this read through. Um, and it stood out to me when they are going into Theoden. I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but they are going into Theoden's presence and they have to relinquish their weaponry. Yep. And he, he's like, if it were any other sword other than Elendil, I would. Uh, Anduril. Andrew, sorry, Andrew, then I wouldn't have a problem with giving it to you right. because of what this is. I have noticed more in this read-through than ever before, and uh, especially in comparison to the movies and things like that, Aragorn owning his kingship. Yeah. Rather than it being this uh, thing that he's been putting off or kind of reluctantly stepping into. No, he owns his kingship throughout this entire series. I've, yep. no, I've noticed that as well. I, the, the very first time he kind of starts to throw that power around is when he meets up with Aomer and his group for the very first time. Yeah. What he actually says is, I am Aragorn, son of Arathorn, and I'm called Elisar the Elfstone, Dunedain, the heir of Isildur, Elendir, son of Gondir. Gondor, here is the sword that was broken and is forged again. Will you aid me or thwart me? Choose swiftly. And it's kind of like, oh, well. That that is not Aragorn being self-effacing anymore. That's not him being just a part of the group. That is him really taking charge. This is who I am. Are you going to help me, or am I going to have to kill you all to keep going forward? Because what I'm doing is way more important than what you're doing right now. And I, I think he feels that mantle of potential kingship mm-hmm. from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And you know, we we see him talk about that and and uh, acknowledge that as far back as the Council of Elrond, um, if not further i can't remember but at least the council of elrond anyway but so i guess my point is his character arc if he has one is not in accepting his kingship the way that it kind of is in the movies right his arc in the books is uh, a little bit more generalized and can be summed up with the word leadership Mm -hmm. where he is he takes a backseat to gandalf for most of book two as they're going on their journey and then as we start book three or as we finish book two and start book three as you said megan he's constantly berating himself why can't i make a, a right decision yeah. is this the yeah. right thing to do i don't nothing, know nothing nothing i'm doing is turning out correctly woe is me this is awful i'm a terrible leader and then by the time gandalf rejoins them aragorn is no longer really taking a back seat if anything he's a co-pilot right with Gandalf at this point mm-hmm. and saying no I am the king this is Anduril and I will reclaim what's mine get out of my freaking way mm-hmm. and uh, and he so his ability or his willingness to take charge and um, and stop wringing his hands mm-hmm. is maybe the most arkish 
thing that he goes through in these books because he's mostly just dope the whole way through, right? Yeah, it's true. So anyway, uh, all right. So as we move on now, we get to... Um, I have one more question from you. So, oh, okay. For you specifically from the chapters of The Departure of Boromir before we sure. get too far. Yeah. Um, they are, they've just, they're looking at the dead orcs and everything and they're kind of going over the hand you know it's a white hand trying to figure out who it is and Gimli's like S is for Sauron that is easy to read Legolas says or Legolas says uh, he doesn't use elf runes but then he says neither does he use his right name nor permit it to be spelt or spoken I've never caught that before like Sauron it always just seems like whenever the good guys talk about it like they, it's the you know Sauron it's not like Voldemort or anything where they make, a, <laughs> right. they make a very make it very poignant that you don't say his name right or you don't do these things. Well, I. why? So, I, I don't know off the top of my head if there is even an answer to this. Somebody could hop on Reddit and let me know. Uh, my Tolkien trivia is failing me a little bit. Um, Gandalf has his original name. Mm-hmm. The, the, the name that he had as uh, one of the Maiar. And now he's known by many names. Uh, so he's got Mithrandir, he's got Gandalf, he's got whatever the other ones are that the dwarves have the a name for. The Grey Wizard. Right, the Grey Pilgrim and all that stuff. Uh, similarly, Saruman has lots of different names. And so I don't know if Legolas is referring to his uh, his name in Angelhood or if he's referring to his uh, elvish name. So Gandalf is known as Mithrandir among mm-hmm. the elves. Uh, Sauron is known as Kurunir. Uh, and so, who knows? Maybe he's just talking about that. I'm not sure. So, yeah, somebody hop on Reddit and uh, let me know if I'm missing something, if, if something just fled my memory. I just, I've noticed with this having more of a, a soft magic system, and there's a moment later on, which we can move forward now into this and I, we can revisit it, but when Gandalf is talking to Theoden, um, again, this is movie branding that's in my head, you know, it's this moment where he throws his staff and you know kind of magics him and changes him it's not that way in the books it's basically he just calls him back to action and shows him his people and says you need to be you need to be a king again and theoden seems to come back from that right and it's kind of the power of the of words and things and and of of, it showcases that and that's kind of what i'm looking at here is like is sauron nervous of people using his name because of the power it would you mean I mean Sauron specifically, because when in this one he's talking about Sauron. Oh, I'm sorry, I misunderstood your your quote. Yeah, no, they're they're going through, and it's just it's in the moment when they're discovering that it's Saruman. But the Gimli, they see the S on them, and Gimli says, "Oh, the S is for Sauron," and and Legolas is the one who says, "No, Sauron doesn't use elf runes, uh. and he doesn't let his name be written or spoken." Oh, I see. Okay. okay, my bad. I thought you were talking about Saruman. Wow, that was three minutes wasted. Sorry <laughs> about that. It's okay. It's still valuable. <laughs> uh, so Saruman's name, his first name in Elvish, at least, was Gorthaur the Cruel. And, you know, similar to how Morgoth was the name taken up or given to Melkor when that was no longer uh, used for the great Dark Lord. Um, and so Gorthaur the Cruel became Sauron. Uh, so yeah, maybe that's what that's referring to. I don't know. Okay. So then he'd have the same rune as Gandalf if he did use Elvish runes, because Gandalf puts a, a G rune on uh, Bilbo's door at the beginning mm-hmm. of The Hobbit. Oh, that's right. So Gorthaur could use the same one. Fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. So shall we get into something else here? Uh, because I want to talk about uh, something that's really important to the Lord of the Rings as a whole and to this book in particular, uh, and no doubt we will talk about it more as we go uh, into book four. But Abe Lincoln Froman on Discord asked a question, how do you feel about Tolkien's choice to split the Frodo-Sam story and the Aragorn-Legolas-Gimli story? So uh, first I'll just leave it at that and ask you guys how you feel about it. You know, you've had a whole book now, without any Frodo and Sam. Are you okay with that? Do you feel like it should be um, woven in more, you know, more tightly? What do, what do you think? I Well, my initial reaction is to say, I hate it. I hate it that they split it. I just feel stressed the whole time I'm reading it because I'm wondering what's happening to Frodo and Sam. <laughs> but 
um, knowing where their story ends at the end of book four, that's kind of an amazing place to end it. So I like that they don't start with the Frodo Sam story because that is, I, I think, part of it is they are building up the the tension, the suspense, where we have this story happening um, in Rohan that is periphery, that's a little bit more of the, this is the result of all that's happening with everything in the world, with the ring. Um, and then you get to the meat of the story, which is part four, where it's, this is actually, I kind of like that they're not intermixed because already I get a little bit distracted when we're going from, oh, here we have three chapters of uh, everybody in Rohan, and now we have two chapters of Treebeard and the Hobbits. And now we have, at, yeah, yeah. I, I personally like that we're not throwing in a third storyline. Okay, Ryan? I have mixed feelings because I, as a modern reader, I'm, in, I'm used to and inclined towards the concurrent stories happening at the same time sure. and reading them around the same time, especially if events from one affect the other. Usually, like, uh, not really going to get into spoilers, but a rather large event that happens in the middle of the Wheel of Time and that you then follow and get a second book entirely of everybody else's perspective. Right. Like that's kind of the feel I get from these two sections. Like we get to follow this incredible story that happens and then we get to go follow the other one afterwards, which also thankfully is an incredible and important story. And you know what we're coming right. into. Right. But I'm used to getting them at the same time. Like this happens over here and then this happens over to with, with Frodo and Sam and then this happens. And so for example, did anything that happened in this story with Legolas and, and Aragorn and finding the hobbits and everything have an impact on Frodo and Sam in their journey? I don't really, I can't think of anything off the top of my head right now. Like, because they did this at Isengard, right. it allowed Frodo and Sam to do this, which would merit the stories being told mm -hmm. side by side. And because there isn't really that moment, I think I'm a little more okay with it. I don't love it, but I'm a little more okay with it than I would be otherwise. There there are a lot of cross connections that happen and they are there for you to find if you are attentive and reading it for the ninth time in a, a year. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, <and> you're, <laughs> so you're picking up all these little connections. So for instance, when Gandalf comes back, he says something about, uh, he's telling a story of when he defeated the Balrog and he says, I, I was up on a high summit and I strove with the Dark Tower. And we can know from the chronology that what he was doing at that moment was, uh, was aiding Frodo when he was at Amon Hen. So at the end of book two, when Frodo is up on Amon Hen, he's run away from Boromir, oh, yeah. he's put on the ring, and he sees the eye. And there, every everything that the ring can do it's doing to get him to keep that ring on stay visible to the eye of Sauron so that it can be found and then there's some sort of piercing voice that comes through and says take it off you fool and Frodo takes off well we find out that's Gandalf you know so there got it so as you're reading it in book two you just think to yourself oh maybe you know maybe that was his inner decent person <laughs> or you know who knows who knows what that was um, but we find out later it's Gandalf. And so there are little connections like that. Or at the beginning of book three, when Aragorn uh, is mourning, or he hasn't quite gotten to mourning Boromir yet. I think he's still on Amon Hen, and he looks up and he sees what looks like a great eagle. And again, we find out when Gandalf returns and, and joins the group once more, he had at some point sent Gwaihir, the Wind Lord, to oversee what, you know, gather some information, find out what's going on. Mm -hmm. That was Gwaihir up there. Mm -hmm. uh, checking in on, you know, finding the fellowship, all that stuff. So though those connections, and we can probably get more into those with the, uh, the Palantiri and their, uh, their connections to each other mm -hmm. later on. But for now, uh, we'll just say, yes, there are a lot of connections anyway. Oh man. Sorry. Professor Craig's coming out to play. That's okay. We're going to need him on this episode. Yeah. There are only <laughs> three of us here. So somebody has got to come. So, hang uh, out with us. um, what we're experiencing with this split, and and it's not just between Frodo and Sam versus Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli. It's actually also just within book three, we get Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli, and we get the two hobbits. Yeah. 
Yes. And those two storylines are bouncing back and forth, like you said, Megan. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Gandalf will join the fray at some point, but uh, he doesn't get his own separate storyline. It's those two. And what Tolkien is doing in the Lord of the Rings, uh, you know, largely, but within this book specifically, is a technique called entrelacement. And uh, it's a fancy French word that just means interlacing. Okay. And so there are threads. I mean, we, we use this terminology all the time, the threads of story. And they're kind of, they're woven together. They're braided together to form a big epic whole. And Tolkien wasn't exactly the first one to do this. I mean, he's definitely not the first one to do this. Uh, Thomas Mallory, who wrote um, the uh, the Arthurian epics. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Edmund Spencer wrote the Fairy Queen. He was kind of, um, as far as I remember, he was... Uh, sorry, I'm trying to remember my reading from Tom Shippey, obviously, because everything I know comes from him. He's my favorite college professor I never had, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm his star undergrad, and I never graduated. Um, anyway, yeah, he was he was ripping off the Italian epics, and I can't remember not ripping off. He was he was using techniques from the Italian epics um, from the uh, the late Middle Ages or the Renaissance. Blah 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 blah. Anyway. The problem is that those stories, oftentimes, I mean, you take Thomas Mallory, for instance, they were not very good at it. Okay. (laughs) And what I mean by that is even, okay, so I've got a quote here from Thomas Mallory's editor. Yes, they had, he had an editor back in the day when he wrote Le Mort d'Artur and uh, his editor found it incomprehensible. Okay. It was probably a later editor, obviously. Okay. He didn't have an editor at the time. Um, he said that it had adventures piled up uh, one upon the other without any apparent sequence or design and innumerable personages, mostly anonymous, who were introduced in a wild succession with vague purposes and tasks that were seldom fulfilled. This is, you know, the Arthurian epics, right? Yeah. And so it makes Le Mort d'Artur really difficult to read. Mm-hmm. You have no idea who half the people are half the time and what they're doing. And you're like, well, wait a minute. You were on this other quest. Why did you just like... You just drank a cup of wine and you're like, yeah, sure, I'll go on this other quest with you. No, no problem. Yeah. Oaths? What oaths? Yeah. Uh, it's really weird to read. And so Tolkien took this idea of entrelacement and uh, gave it a lot of discipline that these former authors didn't have as much of. And Shippy points to two different things that I think are really compelling for why it works so well. First, a map. Oh, sure. Something you'll never find in an Arthurian epic or just about anything else up to this point. Uh, So he has a map. And the other thing he has you can find in the appendices, and that's the really, really tight chronology. Mm -hmm. The the things that tie all these different storylines together. Mm -hmm. And so if you are paying really close attention, you don't actually need that chronology in the back. But, oh boy, does it help. Yeah. You know, nobody's paying that close attention. Right. You know, every, everybody, I don't care who you are, your attention is going to flag while you're reading 400,000 words of The Lord of the Rings. Especially during the end chapters. <laughs> we'll get to that. I struggle with those. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, so he's, he's interlacing these storylines so that they all feed off each other. And this is something that uh, that we kind of take for granted now, where you have somebody say, uh, you know, Abe Lincoln Froman asks us, you know, is it effective to split the story? Should he have just woven Frodo and Sam in like the others? Um, because we kind of take this technique for granted now. And I'm thinking specifically of things like the Wheel of Time mm-hmm. or like the Stormlight Archive, where you're just constantly hopping between points of view mm-hmm. and catching up and doing this leapfrogging that we get uh, just like here in book three. So, Megan, before we fired up the mics, you were talking about how this whole thing only takes 12 days. Yeah. But, you know, in the first two chapters, they cover three days or four days of running. And then you go back two days to Mary and Pippin in Mm -hmm. the third day of their captivity. And then they escape and they leapfrog ahead five or six days. So it's kind of nice towards the end when Mary and Pippin are like, wait, how how many days have we been doing? So they actually say, oh, it's been nine days. Right. Oh, really? That's all? (laughs) I just read 160 some odd pages. Anyway, I don't know where I was quite going with that, but uh, if you pay attention, it's all there. And yep. if you don't, it's all in the appendix. So you can make all the connections you want back there. Um, anyway, we we take it for granted now because authors have gotten so effective 
and so nuanced with their ability to do this. And so I, I just finished a reread of The Way of Kings. Uh, yeah, we're going to need to do another episode on that, by the way. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I just finished The Way of Kings and uh, Sanderson does a very similar thing where in part two, he completely abandons one of his main characters, mm-hmm. Shallan. Yep. She is not in part two. Mm-hmm. Drives me absolutely nutty because uh, I love Shallan. But anyway, but he just leaves her behind because we're going to catch up with her storyline later. It's going to be woven in eventually, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, yeah, happens all the time now. I don't know. I, uh, I what else to say? Basically, if if the Lord of the Rings was being written today, I think you would see it written that way. Probably. I don't think you'd see it laid out the way that it is now. But um, because it is laid out the way it is, Megan, you hit the nail on the head. You said you were feeling so much dread for you know, what's going oh, yeah. on with Frodo and Sam. Why, why can't I find out what's happening with them this is driving me crazy how do you think aragorn and gandalf and you know mary and pippin felt well that's a good point right and so it, it kind of drives that feeling home and gives you a little bit of uh, uh sympathy with the characters yeah so it's like i'm one of them i'm just putting myself in there i'm <laughs> pippin in this situation <laughs> Um, all right. So what else do we, we should go on to some other stuff? Uh, do we want to talk about the ant chapters a little bit, Megan? You, you brought them up. I don't know if we have much to say other than, uh, they're slow and take a lot of patience, much like Treebeard himself. I don't have a ton. Well, I don't know. Maybe I will. Maybe I do. I don't know. Let's find out. Um, I, I think that the ants, when Pippin and Mary are separated from the rest of the fellowship, it's a little bit where they come into their own, where you get to know a little bit more about them because they're not just along for the ride. All of a sudden, they have to take a little bit of charge. And yes, they run into Treebeard, who ends up really taking charge, and they're just kind of standing there going, what's happening? We need to make something happen. But uh, it's it's during these chapters. Pippin is one of my favorite characters um, in this story. Uh, partly because he does seem, he just kind of seems like a dope at the beginning. Which and one? Pippin. Pippin, yeah, for sure. I mean, Mary is very sarcastic and he's smart, but he's like, he's just kind of sarcastic. And oh, yeah, it's it's true. It's a compliment. So it's not true. And, you know, just he says all these quippy things all the time. But Pippin, it's Pippin who realizes um, what the orcs are probably searching for, like why they grab the hobbits and why they're running to Isengard. And Pippin's like, Oh, I'm I'm gonna pretend like I have the ring and see if I can trap this orc into um, untying us. Right? You're like, oh yeah, we we may have a treasure, my precious golem. You know, and he <laughs> that was a spot on Pippin impersonation, I'm by the way. Really good at this. Megan, I'm Matt Billy Boyd, so we're besties. <laughs> Megan doing Pippin doing Gollum. Yeah, perfect. You're welcome, everybody. <laughs> um, but I, I enjoy getting to see a little bit of that from the hobbits where they, from these two extraneous quote unquote hobbits, um, where it turns out they do have a very important part to play in getting the Ents to be a part of this battle. And the Ents even say later, you know, this, we weren't actually that hasty. We've been known, knowing something's been happening for a long time. It, you know, it's either we do something now and we're actually a part of it or, it comes to our doorstep and it happens to us. So we might as well just go and make something happen. And, and it's part of the hobbits are part of yeah. that. Ryan. So the ants section, I actually did a little bit of looking into uh, some information here because yeah, when we were back in the fellowship of the ring, we very briefly talked about, uh, I think we just literally, it was like a one line throwaway thing about the industrial revolution versus oh, sure. environment discussion. And I was reading what some, uh, someone posted this and it's saying that the Ents may be Tolkien's most original creation and that there's a common story that tells about how disappointed Tolkien was that Burnham Wood and Macbeth only moved metaphorically. And so he wanted to create something to, to, to fill that. Um, there's a, a that uh, Tom Shippey actually brings that up in the extras on the extended edition of oh, yeah? the movies. Yeah, so if you go watch those uh, DVD extras, he kind of talks about that. But I, which I think is, hey, as an author, by all means, that's that's your prerogative to be able to, you know, right the wrongs you see. And and, now, and, and now how giant are the balls? On the man who says, Shakespeare screwed it up. I'm going to do it right. I'm going to make this. <laughs> this forest needs to move. 
And I mean really move. Right. Ironclad that man. <laughs> but basically the kind of the point they were getting to on top of this was that this was a way for Tolkien to to talk a little bit about his frustrations with the uh, industrial growth of England versus the country that he had loved, like the country as right. he loved it. Yep. And that these Ents, they, it's the, they've got this longevity and they, they might be slow to move and everything, but that's because that's the way that things are in that light, in that style of life that's being lost. Yeah. And uh, that he would love to, that he probably would have loved to have seen some of that brought back and fight against the industrial drive of, of the future. But. Yeah, yeah. So when Tolkien was a little boy, two years old, I think, his father died and his mother moved back to England from South Africa and they stayed in Sarhole Mill for, or Sarhole, I guess, for uh, uh, several years. And so he would often go play in the woods and the fields there and Sarhole Mill was there. Now, a mill, if we came across this mm. mill today, oh my word, how charming. This brick thing with a, a little cute little smokestack and it's got the water wheel and it's adorable, right? <laughs> so, in Tolkien's mind, this thing is a freaking scar on the countryside, right? This mm -hmm. smokestack belching out its, uh, you know, nastiness or whatever. Well, okay, I don't know that that's actually how he felt about this particular mill, but imagine... You're, you are in love with the trees, the greenery, the hills, the grasses, the everything, the nature around you, and then there's this mill. Uh, and then as he, uh, his mother died, and he went off to school in Birmingham, and suddenly that one mill times a mill, you know, <laughs> uh, suddenly there's just smoke and reek and disgustingness everywhere. I've seen Mary Poppins. I know what England looked like. <laughs> and sounded like. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, just imagine that. Like, you, So you were used to the greenery, and there's this one thing, and then suddenly you're thrust into a world of filth. And, uh, you know, <laughs> Birmingham, circa 1908 or whatever it would have been, 1905, this is not a pleasant place. Mm -hmm. This is not a clean, happy yeah. place to be. You know, depending on how you measure such things. And so you can see where that would leave quite an impression on a 12-year-old kid to go from one to the other. Absolutely. I'm just curious. I think it's just interesting that this race, these the Ents, just the way you choose to kind of go about, he chose to go about and give life to the, the alternate mm -hmm. voice versus just, you know... You could even easily have a race like the elves or whatever stand up and protect, you know, to protect this right. or whatever, but to actually give life to the forest itself, to give a voice to the trees and everything. It's, it's, it's beautiful. I think, I think so too. He would name trees uh, if it was, you know, on his property or especially at Oxford. If there was a tree of some note, you know, maybe mm -hmm. it was aged well, or maybe it was a, a particularly beautiful tree. He would give them names. He knew them all. And he regarded them as friends in some capacity. And so <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't, you know, for for somebody else, it might be quite a creative leap to go, wow, shepherds of the forest, these uh, kind of tree men, hybrid things that can walk. And for him, it's like, no, no, not, that's not a big stretch. Yeah, Gary down the road. I mean, he's, that's, <laughs> just, that's just the way he is exactly. every time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, should we uh, bring up another Megan point before we get to the uh, Discord stuff and the Reddit stuff? <laughs> Make it sound like it's such a treat, a Megan point. I'm really interested in okay. what you have to say. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> I I do think one of the things Treebeard, Treebeard says as they're marching off to war um, is kind of profound. He says, if we stayed at home and did nothing, Doom would find us anywhere sooner or later. It's one of those things where if... I can't think of any other example except a political example where if... Um, Go for it. I don't know how to say it. Go for it. If if we don't take an interest in what's going on in the world around us, it's going to affect us anyway. So we might as well take an interest. Well that's said. all I want to say with that there. That's that's uh, not if a terribly that political point. To you, well, I don't know. If there's something that matters <laughs> to you, go ahead and do something about it. And if... But, you know, if, even if it doesn't matter, it's probably going to affect you at some point. Uh, yeah. 
Anyway, um, I also, the other thing I wanted to say, I'm pretty sure you're going to hate, but you know how I've been looking for tunes to go with each of the songs as they come up? Oh boy. <laughs> if you bring up Mary Poppins again, I'm going to be very cross. No, no, it's worse. Oh boy. Uh, it's the oh, Ants marching song. Step in time. <laughs> Are you going to sing for us, Megan? I just yes. want to. I just want to. You know, put out a trigger warning for anybody uh, who's listening in. Megan is about to sing. You want to hear really good things? Uh, no, the tune I came with was the ants go marching. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> To land of gloom, with tramp of doom, with roll of drum, we come, we come to Isengard with doom. We come nice. with doom, we come. You're welcome. Hey, that's not bad. I know, right? That's fine. It fits perfectly. That is going to end up being a soundbite and a ringtone somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, doom, I'm looking doom, forward to that. Doom, doom. Yeah, wow, doom. Uh, we just brought that up in the uh, Moria chapters as well. You're mm. welcome. There's a lot of that going around. Um, all right. Ryan, what do you think? reddit and discord or do you have something else you want to bring up uh let's move into that we can they'll probably lead us into other discussions because we've got a lot of things like helms deep and oh yeah aftermath you know like with the palantir and oh boy oh boy rohan um actually rohan there in is general yeah <laughs> there we is. haven't even talked about eowyn or any yeah. of those that's any okay and that's the thing look everybody listening in i know we're gonna skip so much stuff sorry tune into the live streams on patreon we can get to all that other stuff Okay, before we get to that stuff, um, let me stay on Treebeard for just a second. This is another Abe Lincoln Froman question here. Um, in the Treebeard chapter, you learn, if I understand my lore correctly, that the Entwives were last seen during the Second Age. Do you think we'll get any Entwife action in the Amazon series? Phrasing, Abe Lincoln I just Froman. want to know exactly what you mean by Entwife action, because <laughs> either way, yes, we're going to get it in the HBO series. Hot dog. Um <laughs> Follow up. Did they leave because of how boring the Ent moot is? <laughs> <laughs> the Ents didn't even notice. It was like 45 years later and they wait a minute. Where is everybody? <laughs> and the wives are all like, we're going to go find ourselves some new. There's so some forest uh, <laughs> on some other part of Middle Earth is where they all went to and just put down roots. And they're like, yeah. Up- upgrade to some younger models of Ents. Yeah. Uh, There's a nice quake in uh, the street that's been paying attention to me. So... <laughs> Uh, no, I, I don't think we'll get any Entwife stuff in the, I don't want, no, now that you say that, that's not crazy, is it? Because the, the, I would uh, not expect it to be a major plot point, but absolutely you could have, you know, a a single Entwife come through a town and they're like, oh, wow, look, it's an Entwife. And And she's like, don't, don't talk to me. I'm busy fleeing (laughs) the Entmoot. The Entmoot is going on. We're just, uh, (laughs) Okay, so... Oh, honey, you just don't know. Uh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, and he also asks, what say you about Treebeard being modeled after Tolkien's fellow inkling, C.S. Lewis? Uh, fun fact, Elwyn Ransom in Lewis's Space Trilogy is modeled after Tolkien. Um, yeah, I mean, there's probably not a ton to say other than that it's a fun homage. You have this image of um, Treebeard wandering through the forest and kind of loudly... Uh, singing out these uh, ent walking songs and that was kind of an image that a lot of people reported of C.S. Lewis that he would just walk through the halls in Oxford kind of in a deep voice and he would bark out orders to people around him and I didn't know I aspired to be like C.S. Lewis someday (laughs) he was was truly larger than life and uh, was, was boisterous and um, and and interesting and slow and you know all the things that we associate with Treebeard and so there you go I don't know what to think about it other than oh, that's nice if you don't know if you don't know about it you don't catch because I didn't Mm-mm. you've probably told me that before and I still didn't know it until just this moment right didn't draw that connection yeah. um, Jack from Discord just Jack okay uh, says does the cast think the second film does the second book justice Another question, which character arc is the strongest and most compelling in book three? So we'll come back to that second one later. Okay, Mm. so does the Two Towers movie do the events in book three justice? And this is where maybe we can talk about Helm's Deep. We can talk about Mm -hmm. Eowyn a little bit. This is a a very broad question that I think is a great one for eliciting a bit of conversation here. So let's start with Eowyn and then move to Helm's Deep. How did they do with that? Because... I'm going to go out on a limb and just say that all the the Marion Pippin stuff and the Fangorn stuff and the running across the countryside, all you know, the first 
four or five chapters or so nailed it yep like like for sure nailed it where they started to take liberties came more around eowyn and edoras and helm's deep and all mm-hmm. that stuff so that's probably a little more fruitful line of conversation so starting with eowyn how do we feel like they did Megan? i i love what they did with eowyn in the movies reading the books man i identify with her hardcore she was like immediately friend zoned and it's so sad um <laughs> but poor eowyn is is raised in a society where being a warrior really matters. And she, I mean, her parents are dead. She lives with her uncle and her brother and her cousin. And then her cousin is gone. And like, she's basically, I personally feel like Awen is kind of looked at as property where like Wormtongue, his prize, you know, what he would wish for as his prize is Awen. And she's aware of this and totally grossed out as. As she should be. She should be. Um, and then you come like in comes the opposite of worm tongue, which is Aragorn, and immediately is like, "What? You are so unlike any other man I have ever seen, and I think I love you." And he immediately realizes, like, "Crap, I'm already taken. I don't want to hurt her." Like, it's just it's all. And I love in the movie that they really get to explore that, where they have a couple of conversations where, um, he, you know, she recognizes, "Oh, you already have a girlfriend." Like. That's cool. It's like they're at the bar. <laughs> well, I mean, they're, cool. they're having the conversation while they're all walking to Helm's Deep. And she's like, you know, so what's the stone from? Who's the girl? Kind of right. thing, which is definitely what I do when I, I'm like, I have a crush on this guy, but I need to treat him like a person. So how did you meet your wife? So yeah. I kind of feel like in this this plot line with Eowyn is really good to illustrate her character uh situation and her arc that she goes but through but it also kind of it, it shows what happens with people who are not warriors who well, aren't really a part of the central story i interrupted you continue right okay so it does a really good job at setting up her arc um but her arc in the book is not simply oh i'm in love with every boy right yes. she is she's more than that it's about uh name that reference do you remember that? No, I don't. I just really enjoyed the Pinocchio-esque <laughs> response. That was Homestar Runner. Uh, oh, yeah. Anyway, uh, so, so in the movie, it's I'm just I am desperately in love with Aragorn and all this stuff. In the book, that is present, but it serves more to push the narrative that actually matters for her in the book, which is I want to. Uh, I, I want to perform deeds of renown. Right. I want to she be more to than just somebody who's stuck in the house. Yeah. I want to do more than what is being given to me. And so in the movie, they really play up the relationship stuff because you need that love triangle. Oh, what's Aragorn going to do? Who there are is he only three pick? girls in these books. Hurry, we have to right. have some kind of love interest. And I'm not sure that I... I I'm not mad about that. It's... It's all right. Well, because they also play up her wanting to be a warrior. Because they definitely have those moments where she's talking with Mary and where she's, you know, even those who don't hold swords can still die on them. She has a whole lot of conversations there, right. too. Yeah. No, I think in the movie, they they do a good job of fleshing out both of those things. It's mm-hmm. not like they leave behind the whole, I want to be a warrior yeah. story. They just, yeah. they have a lot more of the relationship stuff, so. But there really isn't much of Eowyn in these books, in in this book Right, in she's going to be much more book five. And so if that was all that we were going to have with that character, that would be about all we know is that, oh, she kind of seemed to have a crush on Aragorn. He was like, uh, I can't smile about that. I can't look at her now. Right. That's yeah. all we get from her. Honestly, uh, if it wasn't for the fact that I'm with an elf goddess, basically, <laughs> you'd have a good <laughs> shot here. This It's not you. It's me and the fact that I'm with her. Like, she literally, and we know this, she is literally one of the top two best looking people of all time. Sorry, I'm taken. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, Ryan, what about Helm's Deep? Uh, you, we're going movie movie versus book. And, okay. And then we can maybe use that to <laughs> slide into a discussion of actually what happens in the book and how it goes. The, the impressiveness of the feat is much larger, greater in the book. Like the Ents Seven Toes, or? Yes. Oh, okay. No, no I'm, uh, <laughs> the, I'm what quick. they accomplish at Helm's Deep in the book is incredibly impressive and very, uh, it's a lot darker. It's a lot more, there's a heroic. lot more weight to it. Heroic, yeah. That being said, 
I absolutely adore the visuals and the that sequence. It is probably my favorite sequence in the Lord of the Rings movies. When the elves show up? Is the Helm's Deep, just with all of them there. Oh, gotcha. Not necessarily the moment they show up, but with all of them there, with the elves there. Um, so I, I would not have them change it back. I would not have them reduce it to just the 300 men or whatever. Yeah, it's just... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 300 versus 10,000. Holy smokes. Which, I mean, I've seen that movie too. There were The men were wearing a lot less clothing. And, <laughs> and boy, those abs. They were a lot swearier. But I wouldn't change it. I, I just, I think for for the movie, it's it's a good addition and a, a good piece to add in there. And I don't feel it took away from anything. But sliding into the story of Helm's Deep itself, that is, if you want to have a moment of absolute despair, it's the moment right before that battle starts up and you realize this is it. This mm-hmm. is all you have. Mm-hmm. And if if this was my first time, I had no other connection to Lord of the Rings. I had nothing else to gauge on. I read this part and I go, everyone here should die except our heroes who should be able to somehow, they'll somehow be forced to escape, but everyone should die in this. Or someone's going to have to show up to save them all, which kind of happens. Kind of. <laughs> Not to the same extent with the elves, but with um, the Rohirrim, so. Yeah, yeah. I One of the things I enjoy most about reading this sequence is how important um, Gimli and Aragorn in particular end up being in this battle. Uh, there's at one point where Aragorn and Aomer are fighting outside of the walls and the person that ends up saving them is Gimli, who nobody notices because he's short. And Aomer had made a comment earlier that, you know, if your head were two feet higher from the ground, I'd cut it, you know, like making short jokes. And it turns out, oh, because he's little, like he somehow went unnoticed in this battle and he ends up saving them so that everybody could get inside again to relative safety. Mm-hmm. Um, but Aragorn definitely, I mean, I guess because of the way it's written, but he definitely makes a big difference in this whole battle and in the leadership in, the, in this battle. And he's not one of the, none of the people in this war are, are like leaders who, you know, tell everybody else what to do and then they stand in safety. No, like he is right in the middle of it. He is definitely a fighter. He wants to help protect these people. Yep. Which yep. I think is beautiful. This uh, is, sorry, this is a mild tangent, but one of my favorite Lord of the Rings memes or whatever uh-huh. is in this sequence when lo- they're all getting ready for the battle and Aragorn and Legolas are talking back and forth in Elvish and he's like, these men are going to die or whatever. And then he shouts out in English, then I will die with them. Oh, from and the movie. Like, sorry, yeah, I was movie. thinking of the book. Now from the movie and says, then I will die with them. And it's like, I will die as one of them. I die as one of them. And then it cuts back to like Legolas or Gimli or whatever. And it's like, that's the part you decided to say in English. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, that was a tangent. That really threw me off. Sorry. Maybe we can talk more about uh, Helm's Deep, but I forgot anything I was about to say about it. So let's go on. I want to get to, um, oh, here's a quick fire question for you from Epidemiologic on Reddit. Uh, asks do you picture the actors of the movies when you read the books as long as we're talking about the movies might as well ask this one i do now i didn't used to oh really i had a i had an old copy of the lord of the rings i don't know what edition it was but the the fellowship was in was a green cover uh yeah two towers was purple or whatever but it had a fabio-esque Legolas oh yeah and another mm. and then a dwarf there and <laughs> up until the movies like that's how I visualize these characters oh interesting in and even when I first read this when we did it for the first time I would bounce between Orlando Bloom and Fabio is my Legolas <laughs> <laughs> that is perfect that is perfect uh Megan I do I first started reading the books after the first movie came out uh-huh. because I didn't want to wait two years to find out how it sure. ended um, so yeah, so, yeah I pretty you, much do, even though sometimes I look at them and I'm like, yeah, that actor is not as good looking as I pictured them from the books. But that's for fine. me, it definitely depends on the actor it, and how well they did it. Um, well, no, I shouldn't. Let me take that back. It's not about how well they did it necessarily. Some of them I think could have performed better. Others were so uh, visually spot on that it really works. Um, there is no other worm tongue. Mm-hmm. than Brad Dourif. Like that straight up is Wormtongue, right? Uh, same thing with um, Christopher Lee. Yes. Just embodies Sauron. There is no other Sauron, and that is the end of the story. But when it comes to the four hobbits, I could take them or leave them. I don't really picture those actors in my head. Yeah, no. me neither. Not that they didn't do a good job. That's not what I'm saying. And so that's why I kind of wanted to walk that back a little bit. They all did fine jobs. 
um, and really, I really enjoyed their performances, but they don't quite fit the the visual mold for me in the books. The visual they used for Aragorn on those covers was, it looks almost identical to the same guy who plays Prince Humperdinck in The Princess Bride. Oh, perfect. <gasps> yes. Can you imagine Aragorn as, the, as Prince Humperdinck? Ah, uh, Chris Sarandon. <laughs> Chris Sarandon. Aragorn. Yeah. Uh, so, that okay. idea. hopefully that answers that. Epiphanyless, uh, which <laughs> is a name I like on it's Reddit. Great names. Let's see. Oh, sorry. Going uh, this one goes all the way back to chapter one. Epiphanyless asks uh, from chapter one, hanging around so much when urgency is needed, singing and mourning Boromir. You know, it's kind of kind of a quick fire thought. I'm all right with it. This that's we gave we we kind of gave them a little bit of crap. We've when we were like, oh yeah, they just ran off after Gandalf, and now they're like, now we're going swinging yeah. the other way, right? Like. Well, now someone died, and now you're singing about it, like you're actually mourning. Well, they've clearly mourned on both occasions. Like right. This is just part of their mourning process. And it was and also they still they still drive it forward. Like Legolas and Gimli are like, we don't have time to bury him. We don't have time to do these things. So right. let's sh- let's chuck him in the river. Like that's. <laughs> I am I'm very impressed though at how quickly they come up with a song about Boromir. Like it's a fleshed out whole bunch of chorus oh yeah song oh, and at yeah. the end Gimli's like I didn't get to sing this so I'm like oh let's keep going <laughs> <laughs> that's because uh, your voice sucks <laughs> let's see Epiphany Liss also asks let's see oh Wormtongue when he says something like Lothspell I name you he has some of the best lines in the entire book totally agree Wormtongue is a fantastic character and this kind of takes us back to something you were talking about earlier Ryan where in the movies, we've got this uh, kind of possession by Saruman of Theoden, mm-hmm. a literal possession. And in the books, it's much more subtle and roundabout where um, Saruman is poisoning the mind of Theoden, but he's doing it through uh, Wormtongue. Right. And we know that Saruman has a lot of power in his voice. And it's not just about the, uh, you know, the timbre of his voice. It's about the words he uses as much as anything else. And so... Uh, we get, kind of get to see that conveyed through Wormtongue. Uh, so he gets a lot of great lines that we can assume were, you know, largely fed to him through Saruman. I, th- I love that character. He's yeah. so good. Um, and also, let's see. Chapter 10, the voice of Saruman really needs to be imagined in Christopher Lee's voice. Perfect. Yep, absolutely. Agreed. Um, okay. I also wanted to bring up something, Ryan, you and Kyle said in the last episode or two about this, which is the the poems and the purpose that they serve. Mm-hmm. And we talked a lot about um, the idea of an oral tradition passing down history through, uh, through poetry. And we get a really, really clear version of that. We've had some up to now, mm-hmm. but at the very bitter end of part three, when Pippin is on Shadowfax and he's racing toward Gondor with Gandalf, he hears Gandalf muttering a song behind him and he catches a few lines from this song and the lines are tall ships and tall kings three times three what brought they from the foundered land over the flowing sea seven stars and seven and seven stones and one white tree and it's this really simple little rhyme and the whole purpose of it is oh this is what people have been saying for generations to remember what it was that the Numenorians brought over seven stars and the seven stones and the one white tree and you know a lot of that meaning is going to be lost but at least you still have the lines mm-hmm. you know and so it's uh gandalf calls it uh or, oh or maybe pippin calls it rhymes of lore which is a perfect name for it so there you go there's your poetry talk i couldn't not talk about poetry at all do we know what the seven stars are the seven stars are uh symbolic of it's it's a numenorian thing we, you know, okay. you, we should go read the Silmarillion, Ryan. Let's read the Silmarillion. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> Enthusiastically. Okay. <laughs> no, if you uh, if you look at the uh, tree of Gondor, um, yes, the, uh, the 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 banner that they carry, uh-huh. it has seven stars above the white tree. Oh, okay. Anyway, it's because right. the stones are the palantirs. The palantir. Palantirs. Yep. Ryan, what else you got? Well, we can go for the Palantirs for a moment here. I mean... The Palantiri. The Palantiri. Yes. Palin, not the Palantorin, the <laughs> Palantas. I don't know. That's right. Man, I, my, I'm really connecting well tonight. But the Palantiri, uh, great communication system or failed marble? I don't... <laughs> okay, what did... Expound. 
fire those synapses, Ryan. Let's go. Well, we were just talking about that that poem. Yep. And the the seven stones were the seven palantiri, which means at some point in time they were like the communication system for the good guys, right? Right. For the but, leaders of the good guys. For the leaders of the good guys. So basically, it was like, hey, you know, this is our way of communicating across vast distances in a world that does not have the communications that we share. So, how do they? Obviously, now they're all they're are they all wicked? Are they all under the uh, rule of Sauron? Mm. Oh, that's a question. Um, because we have Pippin, Pippin, right? Yes. Right. Who touches it, and he's now seen in there, and it's it's affected him, or whatever. But what was what are you able to see in the Palantir? What are you able to be a part of now that Sauron has the connection to them? Ooh. Do you do you want me to put on my elbow patches or? Sure. Okay. Well, because Gandalf Megan. Gandalf says that like they are not inherently evil, like they're wielded like anything else. Where if you have a like Sauron is that person who anything he takes he's going to twist to evil means, so it right. becomes evil. Um, and I guess he got his from one of the meanest places. <laughs> one of the meanest places. <laughs> one wow. Of the, one of Gondor's thrift shops. <laughs> 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 yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was in the gift shop you know. on the third level of the tiered cake that <laughs> yeah. is uh, Minas Tirith. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there, there is talk. But yeah, of, they they weren't they weren't evil. But since he has one, he knows that Saruman has one. You know, they're looking there, and Saruman think is thinking, oh, I can, I can somehow pick Sauron's brain, but not so much. It's essentially so. Basically, it's essentially that because they are using to anyone who uses something else, you open up the that world potentially to them to see is it just yeah. that or so the has problem, there actually been a corruption you know that yeah the problem is that they're not it's not just like skype you don't just call and check in and then hang up these are magical stones and they depend much like the ring itself it depends on the will of the user mm-hmm. now in the case of the ring you know there is no overcoming sauron's will i mean that is what the ring is it, you know it is Sauron embodied in a way. Right. Um, but the Palantiri are similar in that it requires uh, uh, quite a force of will to turn one of those away from uh, somebody like Sauron if he has control of it. Right. And so Aragorn, uh, spoiler alert, I guess, is going to be able to do that. In fact, I think he does it in this book. If I'm not mistaken, he does it while he's in Helm's Deep. Um, after the battle, he turns that palantir away from sauron is that right no it's not right it's got to be later uh he does confront sauron at some point even if he doesn't turn it away from his will uh what was i going to say anyway so yeah it's about is it inherently evil no it's not inherently evil but sauron has been collecting these and distributing the ones that he has to places where it's necessary like isengard um and so oh that's right Aragorn's going to do that in book five. Sorry, I was mistaken. Um, <laughs> anyway, so he's been distributing them, but it is his will that is exerted upon them. So Sauruman has a lesser will than Sauron. Mm-hmm. And so even his uh, Palantir is corrupted by Sauron. Same thing with Denethor's in Minas Tirith. He has one and he thinks... Just like you said, Ryan, oh, I'm going to peek in on the strategies of the enemy. Mm-hmm. But in fact, Sauron is more powerful of mind and cleverer than Denethor is. And so he's able to kind of laugh in his face and turn that around and um, screw with him because he he meddles with the wrong thing. Okay. So anyway, does that answer your question? I can't even re- remember what the original question was. Yes, I, it's... Outside of understanding that this was a, con- a communication method, I wasn't really. Un- I don't really understand like exactly how they, how Sauron's effect on them would was that far. So you answered it, it's right? Well, and it sounds like Sauron isn't necessarily able to read your mind if you're looking in the Palantir because he he sees Pippin in this Palantir and think and, and assumes and, he's Frodo. Yeah, and Gandalf is like, oh, so now he's assuming that Saruman has this Hobbit and that he has the Hobbit with the ring, and but he like. It's not like Saruman looked at that and could read Pippin's mind right. and know, oh, and this is where the, you know, oh, he doesn't have the ring, but he does have a friend who does. It's- Which would make sense as to if you knew that Sauron was looking for that hobbit now that he's seen them. And it makes sense why he's so affected afterwards, the will of Sauron hitting. Right. Doing that. 
I don't recall. Is there a specific statement as to why he takes him to Minas Tirith? He says, I can't take you back to Rohan, basically. But why he takes him to Minas Tirith yeah, instead. Yeah, I think, I think we'll get to that. Um, and so maybe we can talk about that next time or on, on book five. Uh, but the one thing I did want to bring it back to is, uh, you know, going full circle, talking about Entre Les Um these, this interlacing of the storylines, uh, the the fact that Pippin looked into the stone and that Sauron thinks that that's the hobbit who has the ring and that hobbit is in Isengard is going to be a catalyst for stuff that happens going forward in the book. Oh. So the the attack on Minas Tirith happens too early. Sauron was gathering all these forces and he he gathers uh, what seems like an unstoppable force. Turns out it is stoppable, right? Uh, but it seems like an unstoppable force. If he had taken a few more weeks, a few more months, it would have in fact been an, inst- an unstoppable force. But, you know, th- this is one of those interlacing things that if you're not really paying attention, you might just miss it. But Sauron attacks too early because he thinks... That the ring is now in the hands of um, the good guys and it's headed to Minas Tirith or whatever. You know, he's mm-hmm. got to move. And so he's going to go after uh, Gondor. That makes sense. Too soon. Oh, I'd never put that together. Yeah. Um, anyway, sh- I guess we'll just leave it there and go to book four now because we've run up on our time. Is there anything like really pressing that we need to get to? Um, I feel like we hit all the major stuff. Boy, I hope There's people a lot don't of cool yell at us. stuff, but it's not really going to merit a lot of discussion. The Aomir and the Rohirrim, like just the general culture of Rohan, everything. Like it's it's cool. I mean, we could talk more about the confrontation with Saruman, but yeah, that breaking his staff and yeah, breaking his staff and the Ents being the ones to guard him. I I do think it's cool that Gandalf kind of gives him an out at one point. He says. I'll let you be free. Like, you don't have to serve any master. You don't have to have your will taken over, except, like, then you'd have to give up um, any kind of leadership. You can't be a leader. You can't be in charge of anyone. You have to just go on your own and Saruman. Not good with that. If we don't, if we stay in there too long, I will have to somehow make a musical connection to Saruman and the Coat of Many Colors. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so that's all the time we're giving to this episode. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. <laughs> I really don't want that. Uh, so we'll be back I with book four. Handsome, I look smart. Oh, get out, get out, get out, get out. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Quick, uh, Craig, it's your turn to sing. No, I, I did my poetry earlier. That's as close as I'm Fine. getting today. Uh, go Kill to patreon.com slash legendarian to support the show. Make sure you are uh, keyed in to our conversations on Discord, on Reddit, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I'm probably missing somewhere else, but that should just about cover it. If you have anything uh, that you would like us to discuss in book four, please let us know on one of those uh, places and we will be happy to try to get to it. For those who submitted questions or comments and we didn't quite get to them today, I do apologize. Hopefully we covered most or uh, or all of it. Uh, but yes, thank you so much for those prompts. It really helps with us uh, making sure that we cover the things you guys want us to talk about in addition to the things that we want to talk about. So much thanks there. We will see you for Frodo and Sam's uh, wonderful journey through the swamp and beyond in book four. We'll see you then. We'll see you then.